Tonight I would like to discuss what the meaning and significance the Buddha has for us in our lives and in these times. It's quite amazing that somebody sat under a tree in India over 2,500 years ago, we're sitting in a meditation hall in Barry, Massachusetts as a consequence of that. What is the meaning of the Buddha's life for us? What is the meaning of his enlightenment? We can understand his life on different levels. Can first understand his life as an historical person, somebody who was born at a certain time, certain place, went through childhood, the trials of adolescence, marriage, family, parents. And then his path diverged a little bit for most of ours. There's a certain historical quality to it, and we can relate to him as a fellow human being. There's another level that we can appreciate his life on, and that is the understanding of the Buddha as representing a basic archetype of humanity. That is the archetype of an awakened mind, the archetype of Buddha nature. This really represents the potential of awakening, the potential of enlightenment within the mind, within the mind of all of us. When we look at his life on the level of a fundamental archetype of humanity, begin to see his life not as the particular strivings and struggles and life experiences of an individual, but actually as representing something much more universal. Really represents the unfolding of a sacred mythological journey. Mythological, in this sense, does not mean something which is unreal. Rather, the power of myth, the power of mythology, is that it universalizes the particular. And it's because it has this power to universalize the particular that we can relate to the Buddha's life in a very intimate way with our own. So one level is the Buddha as a historical person, one as an archetype of humanity. The third level of the Buddha is 
the representation of the ultimate elements, of the ultimate realities of experience. There's one story of a monk in the Buddhist time who was fascinated, entranced, and enamored of the physical beauty of the Buddha, who was supposed to embody perfection of body as well as perfection of mind. And this one monk would just be gazing at the beauty and the form. The Buddha admonished him after some time. He said, you could look at this body for a hundred years and you would not see the Buddha. Those who see the Dhamma see the Buddha. And so in this sense of the Buddha as the Dhamma, as the elements, the realities of experience, there's another level to appreciate what Buddha means. When we look at the life of the Buddha on all of these levels as a historical person, as an archetype, as the ultimate realities, then we can begin to appreciate what is universal in his life. We see his life not as some fable of history or some abstraction of something that happened 2,500 years ago. Begin to understand his sacred journey as being our own. Think for a moment of the great explorers of this world, and explorers of any kind, in any field, whether it's of geography, whether it's of science, whether it's of art, whether it's of understanding the mind, any of the great explorers always come to the edge of what is known and are willing to go into the unknown. And there's a tremendous mystery in this and a tremendous excitement. It's the excitement of discovery, the excitement of going beyond the familiar, beyond what we know. You can usually relate to the excitement and mystery of it, but we very often overlook the daily problems involved in such a discovery. The need to eat, problems with flies, the cold, the frustrations, the difficulties, the obstacles, all of these countless frustrations and irritations are actually part of the process of discovery. And in some way, the irritations and the problems and the difficulties that we face in our own practice, if we can understand them as being part of a much larger journey, then we can 
relate to them from the framework of a much bigger context. We see that they are part of the discovery of who we are, part of our life journey. Joseph Campbell was one of the great scholars of world mythology described very beautifully in a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces, he described this sacred mythological journey of the spiritual heroine or hero. And in his description, he took the life of the Buddha to embody this journey. The first stage of it, the first stage of this undertaking of the hero or heroine is called the call to destiny, the call to awakening. And this call to destiny or call to awaken, awakening happens when something occurs in our life which opens us to different possibilities, takes us beyond the realm of our conventional understanding. Something that awakens some dissatisfaction with a conventional way of viewing things. We see that the course of our lives as it's been going, is not fully satisfying, is not complete. Most of us live in a certain world. It's the world of a verb. It's the world of the verb to have. We have material possessions, We have relationships, we have a body, we have a mind. And our whole language, the way we communicate and express things, supports this understanding. Eric Fromm, who's a great German writer, psychologist, He talked about this in one of his books, and he said, that in this way of viewing things, I am what I have. But there's a problem in this view. There's a problem in this understanding, which is that everything we have on whatever level, whether it's external possessions, whether it's the body, whether it's thoughts or feelings or relationships, everything we have, we are going to lose. So what this creates in us is an underlying sense 
of unease or anxiety or fear or incompleteness. When we base our lives on the verb to have, we become inextricably involved with a kind of suffering. In the early life of the Buddha, before he became the Buddha, when he was still called the Bodhisattva, that is, a being on the path to awakening, in his early life, he was enmeshed in the world of having. He had it all. He had three palaces and all the sense pleasures and good education and loving relationships. He had worldly knowledge and skills. He had a kingdom to inherit. And his father, who was the king of this little kingdom in the border of Nepal, in some way he represented all of the worldly values which our own society values, all the values of having. And his father wanted the Bodhisattva to continue in the family line, to take over. For the Bodhisattva, his call to destiny, his call to awakening, came when he began to question this. began to question very deeply these values. He said, Why should I, being subject to decay and death, also seek those things subject to decay and death? Why should we, subject to impermanence, subject to change, also seek those things which are subject to change. It posits a question for us that we need to examine from a place of our deepest clarity. And that is, where is the real value in life to be found? Is it to be found in having? But the Bodhisattva, he questioned this. And he also had a glimpse of another possibility. Had a glimpse of the world of being rather than having. In the world of being, it's as if we come home. We settle back into the truth of what is happening in each moment, rather than trying to possess the moment or possess experience. We are it rather than have it. We come to a place of rest in that. This questioning 
this call to destiny in the Bodhisattva's life awakened in him the energy of countless, countless lifetimes, eons of lifetimes, in which he had been cultivating this quest, this search. What is the nature of birth and death? What is the nature of this life? What is life about? What is it? We each have had a call to awakening. We each have had some call to destiny. There has been something in our lives, each one of us, which has somehow made us question, made us look, woke us up enough to see that the life of conventional understanding, the life of our conventional culture is somehow deeply unsatisfying. And in some way we have all seen that or glimpsed that or we wouldn't be here. This is a major effort that you are undertaking major commitment of energy. What is the source of that? The source of that commitment is this first and essential stage in the spiritual journey. It's this call, this opening, When we connect with our own call to destiny, when we reflect on it in our own lives, it connects us with a tremendous source of inspiration for this effort. We remember why it is that we're doing this. The second stage after the call to awakening, Joseph Campbell called the great renunciation. In order to awaken to what are often very hidden possibilities, it's necessary for us to renounce our old way of viewing things our old way of understanding things, our old ways of knowing things. Because experience is not always what it seems to be. There are many surprises as we look deeply. In another sense, renunciation means the letting go of having as being our deepest value.
coming to that place of valuing being. This happens when we can settle back into a very silent awareness of life, of experience, moment to moment, when we're not reaching out trying to possess things or have things. This is not only in an external way. We can see that difference very clearly right in our meditation practice. What is the difference in your experience when you have a pain? I have a pain in my knee. What's the experience of that? As opposed to the experience of feeling the changing elements, feeling the changing sensations. It's a different world. In one we identify with and possess and have, and in the other we are that process of change. And the flavor of it, the taste of it, the experience of it is very different. This renunciation is of the mode of having. We let go of that. We let go of it in relationship to our thoughts. When we're not aware, there's that sense of, I have a thought, or I have an emotion. In the silent awareness that's being practiced and developed and nurtured, in the silent awareness, we see thoughts, we see images, we see emotions simply arising and passing. There's no one who has them. And so the experience of them is seen in a different way. In an even more subtle expression of the verb to have, as it relates to the meditation practice, It's the mind which is practicing in order for something to happen, in order to have something, in order to have peace, in order to have calm. That's a more subtle expression of that same principle. And so when there's any sense of in order to, practicing in order to, practicing with expectation, we can see that the mind, again, has slipped into that world of having rather than being. It's a strong conditioning. The great renunciation is the renouncing of that mode. By letting go of what we already know, 
by letting go of our old ways of viewing things, by settling into a very deep silence, we begin to open to new ways of viewing things. And this is part of our own great renunciation. For the Buddha, for the Bodhisattva, this stage on his journey happened when he left the palace, he left his family, he left his home. He left the business of the world. He renounced both outwardly and inwardly all of those aspects of having. And he went off, at first he studied with different teachers and he developed all the stages of samadhi, of jhana practice, of absorption, of concentration, and reached high exalted states. But that was like an inner having. And he saw that it was not complete, it was not full, it was not liberation. It was just something else. Then he did six years of ascetic practice, the most intense kind of ascetic disciplines which were known in India in those days. There are some wonderful, wonderful uh, images of the Bodhisattva. It's like these Buddha images, but they represent, it's conventionally known as the emaciated Buddha, although it's actually the Bodhisattva before he was enlightened. And it's these images depicting the extent to which he had taken these ascetic practices. It's said that when he reached in to touch his belly, his hand would reach his backbone. If he went to touch his back, the hand would reach in and touch his belly. It was so thin. He started eating you know, a bowl of rice and then seven grains of rice a day and then one grain of rice a day and on and on and on. He found after six years of this that it didn't work. He was trying to somehow forcefully or with this kind of discipline uproot the ego, uproot the self, uproot Mara. But it was not the way, it was not the path. So finally, he took some food, he nourished himself, he prepared himself for the third great event in his journey. And that's known as the great struggle. There was the call to destiny, that inquiry which aroused him from the sleep of conventional understanding. There was the great renunciation. Now as he sat under the Bodhi tree, it was called the Bodhi tree, he undertook this great struggle with Mara, with all the forces of delusion and ignorance in the mind. Joseph Campbell wrote of this in a very mythopoetic way. 
And I love the imagery of it because it symbolizes, the imagery symbolizes the power and intensity of the struggle. The dangerous god Mara appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. Just as I read this, see if you can visualize this encounter, because it's really wonderful. Mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands, and he was surrounded by his army, which extended leagues before him, to the right, to the left, to the rear. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god Mara then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling muds, blistering sands and fourfold darkness, Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers by the power of Gautama's perfection. Mara then deployed desire and pining and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants. But the mind of the great being was not distracted. Mara finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Major battle. We are all sitting under the Bodhi tree. Every time we sit, it's as if we are sitting under the Bodhi tree and Mara attacks with mountain crags and boiling mud and blistering sands and all the multiple hindrances. It is the same engagement. And if we can understand our own practice in this context, it gives us a much broader, a much larger perspective of what we're doing here. It's not simply a matter of getting through the hour. Every time we sit, every time we walk, we are brought to the edge of what we are willing to be with. 
Can we remain unmoved, still in the face of whatever arises? This is our challenge. This is what is meant by the quality of heroic effort. I'd like to just read to you the determination of the Bodhisattva as he sat down under the Bodhi tree. Let only my skin, sinews, and bones remain and let the flesh and blood in my body dry up. But not until I attain supreme enlightenment will I give up this meditation seat. Can you imagine coming into the hall (laughs) with that determination? (laughs) Let my skin, sinews, and bones remain and let the flesh and blood in my body dry up but not until I attain supreme enlightenment will I leave this seat. Amazing power of mind. It's important to see our own efforts in this larger context. This is the stage of the path of the great struggle, great determination, great resolution. The fourth stage of the spiritual hero or heroine is called the great awakening. For the Bodhisattva, Quite happily, it happened on the very night of that resolution when he said, I will not get up from this seat until I have attained realization. And in the three watches of the night, watch is four hours, the three watches of the night, his mind opened to different aspects of the Dhamma of what was true. In the first watch of the night, it said that his mind went back through his own countless past lives, said through 10 and 100 and 1,000 and 10,000 and eons and maha eons and arisings and destructions of world cycles and a long time. (laughs) And he saw the beings being born. And then he saw his life unfold in a particular way, particular dramas, particular stories, and dying and being reborn through all the different planes of existence. And through seeing this endless cycle of birth and death and rebirth and birth and death and rebirth, he understood in a very immediate and clear way the endlessness and insubstantiality of samsara. Samsara means perpetual wandering, wandering without end through the cycle of life and death. And he saw that for himself. He saw his own, his own sequence of lives. In the second watch of the night, he directed his awareness 
to the birth and death and rebirth of other beings. And he saw how beings fared according to their karma. Beings taking happy rebirth, beings taking unhappy rebirth. And he saw this wandering through samsara happening according to the winds of karma, according to the winds of wholesome and unwholesome actions. And it was from seeing this that a great compassion arose because he saw beings driven by ignorance creating lives of suffering for themselves out of not knowing, out of not understanding. And in the third watch of the night, his mind opened to an understanding of the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. It said just at dawn with the morning star, in that moment, his heart opened to full awakening, full enlightenment, to Buddhahood. It said that he recognized the mind had attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. The end of craving, the end of desire, the end of wanting, the end of suffering. He spent some time after his awakening in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree. Then he traveled to a small village outside of what is now Benares, a village called Sarnath, where there was a deer park. And it was in this deer park that he gave his first discourse to the group of ascetics who had practiced those austerities with him. With this first discourse, it's described how he set the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. It was quite a phenomenal moment, setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion, which is still rolling rolled throughout Asia, over the Pacific, right here to New England. What is it? What is this wheel of the Dhamma that he set in motion? What did he teach for the next 45 years? He taught the truth of suffering. And so obvious in the world. So obvious. There's so much violence and there's so much hatred and poverty and starvation and injustice. And and we all know. There's suffering in the body. Simply having a body, 
you're, you're getting very familiar, very understanding of that truth. Having a body entails suffering. Not only the kinds of painful feelings we have, but the fact that it gets older and it gets sick and it dies. And this is true. This is not a mistake. And it's not that it's true for some and not for others. It's the nature of the body. There's suffering in the mind. All kinds of suffering. You know, of fear and anxiety and loneliness and jealousy and envy and rage and feelings of unworthiness and hatred, and all kinds of torments in the mind. But in our very great world of having, this domain of having, we often get distracted from seeing what is so evident. And the great power and beauty of the retreat, of any retreat, and especially one of this length, is that we stop distracting ourselves for a while. We really undertake this difficult, difficult commitment to opening to what is actually true. We open to the suffering that's there so we can see it, so we can feel it. As our practice deepens, we open to this first noble truth. We also begin to discover much deeper meanings of what life is. Not in a philosophical way, not in some kind of metaphysical speculation, but through our actual moment-to-moment experience. If we want to understand our lives, how do we find out? We look. We look carefully and deeply. A lot of care is needed in addressing this most significant question. A lot of care is needed that we don't get caught up in a net of views, in a net of sentiment, in a net of abstractions, that we really look to see, okay, what is this? What is this mind and body? When we look deeply in an undistracted way, what do we find? We begin to see very clearly the momentary nature of phenomena. We see the arising and passing away moment after moment of sensations and thoughts and feelings and sounds and sights and smells. That there is nothing substantial, nothing steady, nothing lasting, even for a few moments. And we've created this amazing abstraction, which we call life, and then play in the drama of it 
and we miss the deeper reality of what it actually is. The ceaseless arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing of phenomena. And this is not something to believe. It's not another belief to have. It's a question for each one of us of looking deeply enough so that it becomes our own personal experience. What we're doing is training the mind to observe carefully the nature of the mind, the nature of the body. And as we do this, we see this flow of empty phenomena continually arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. As we open to these different levels of experience, of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, we begin to appreciate in a much fuller way, a much more mature way, what the Buddha meant when he taught the first noble truth. It's not a superficial teaching. The second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching is the cause of suffering. One of the great discoveries of the Buddha expressed most simply is that every Dhamma Dhamma here is in the sense of every element, every conditioned experience must have its cause. That has profound implications. Every conditioned experience has its cause. He saw suffering. What is the cause of suffering? The cause of suffering is attachment, is craving. Craving for what? There's craving for sensual pleasures. We enjoy them, we like them, we want them over and over again. We want pleasurable experience and we spend our lives very often in the pursuit of them. But it is an empty pursuit because they don't last, and so we want more. And it keeps us bound to this wheel of life and death. So to look in our lives, in our practice, the force of that craving, can we understand the true nature of pleasant feeling so that we can experience it without attachment. There's craving for sense pleasures. There's craving or attachment to opinions. 
to views. This was a great area which the Buddha talked about, how the mind gets attached to viewpoints and opinions about things. Just can reflect in our own interpersonal lives, in the life of the world, the amount of suffering that exists because of people's attachment to opinions. We kill one another because of different viewpoints. There's attachment or craving for sense pleasures. There's attachment to viewpoint. There's attachment to spiritual experiences. It's another kind of craving. We hold on or we want to have nice experiences in our practice and we end up practicing for them and it becomes just another source of suffering. It's a grasping instead of a letting go. And there's attachment to the concept of self, to the concept of I. This is the root. This is the deepest one we have. The second noble truth of the Buddha's teaching is that the cause of suffering is this force of craving in the mind, the force of wanting, the force of attachment. There's a wonderful image of how this force of craving holds us. It's the image or the example of a kind of monkey trap that was used in Asia. They take a coconut and hollow it out, make a hole in the bottom just big enough for the monkey to slide its hand in but not big enough for the monkey to pull its hand out when it's in a fist. And they put some food in the coconut and fasten it to a tree. The monkey comes along, smells the food, slips its hand and grabs the food, and then it's trapped. It pulls and it pulls and it pulls and it can't get out. Who's keeping that monkey trapped? Only the force of its own attachment, its own craving. All it has to do is open its hand, slip out, and be free. It's a very unusual monkey that can do that. We're the monkeys. That's what we keep doing over and over again. We do it with pleasant experience. We do it with our opinions. We do it with spiritual experiences. We do it with the sense of self. We're holding on, and it's imprisoning us. The Buddha didn't stop with this understanding of what was suffering and the cause of suffering. His own deepest experience and what can become our own is the end of suffering. How to let go. It's the third noble truth of his teaching, the end of suffering. 
in one meaning of this, it's freeing the mind from those forces which cause us suffering. And so it's freeing the mind from the kilesis, from the defilements of greed, of anger, of hatred, of delusion. And we're doing that in every moment of mindfulness. We are beginning to free the mind of these forces. And what this leads to is the state of the unconditioned, what is beyond this mind and body. The Buddha talked of this as the highest peace, the highest happiness the deepest silence. The unconditioned, the unborn. fourth noble truth is how to do this. What is the path which leads to the end of suffering? It's the path which we are walking on. It's the path of sila, which is non-harming action. It's the path of samadhi, which is all those factors in the mind of effort, of mindfulness, of concentration. And it's the path of wisdom. Every moment of mindfulness, every moment in sitting, in walking, in moving about, every moment of mindfulness is another step on this path. We have each heard, each one of us, the call to awakening, the call to destiny. Something awakened in us to look more deeply, to see the possibilities of freedom. And each one of us has undertaken, to some extent at least, the great renunciation, even in being here. There is a renunciation, at least for this time, of our old way of being. We are engaged right now in the great struggle with Mara. We are sitting under the Bodhi tree. We're engaged with the forces of delusion, with the forces of ignorance in our own minds. And it's fantastic. It takes tremendous courage and perseverance and commitment. To be full in this engagement And we're walking on the path to the Great Awakening, to the Great Liberation. 
And what in some ways can inspire so much of this effort is the realization that we are not doing this for ourselves alone. When the first 60 disciples of the Buddha were enlightened, he sent them forth with this, with this exhortation. He said, go forth for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good benefit and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dhamma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, and excellent at the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duties. And so we practice to purify our own minds for our own welfare and the welfare of all beings. The very last words of the Buddha, having spent 45 years teaching and proclaiming the Dhamma, proclaiming this noble life, his last words with the light of perfect wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Strive on with heedfulness. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Strive on with heedfulness. Let's sit for a few minutes.